Okay, today is the last day of our month of May, May the 31st, 2011. I don't think I have to remind you of anything on our schedule right now, so let's get right into our SOP. Moment of silent prayer, rebound as necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that we can always depend upon your power, your wisdom. We thank you for the portion of the word that we're going to study this evening. Pray that you'll help us to file that into long-term memory and be able to use it and apply it whenever we have the opportunity. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There's a, th- certain, uh, a, f- a few things I want to um, bring out tonight. And the first one is, uh, all of them have to do with Israel. The first one is a short quote that I found in Israel My, uh, Israel My Glory magazine this month's issue. It says, the rants in the Middle East are the manifestation of the insanity of anti-Semitic fervor by the masses on the streets of Cairo, Tunisia, Libya, Yemen, and the rest of the Muslim world. In a recent rally in Tahir Square, Cairo, to support the return of the spiritual leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, Sheikh Yusuf uh, Karadari, I believe that's how you pronounce it. The crowd, estimated to be over 2 million, chanted in Arabic, To Jerusalem we go, martyrs by the millions, to celebrate their freedom from Egypt's president, Hosni Hosni Mubarak. The crowd wanted to show their joy by going on a Jew-killing spree and not a peep by the liberal media. Apparently, Nazism and Jew-killing are only reported by liberal media in if the Germans are the Nazis. Just another thing of showing of another illustration of how the media controls so much by not only what they do present, but what they also what they don't present. Then I received this from an email, and this was from a, a correspondent. This is what I'm giving you is news that you don't get on the uh, TV. And uh, many of you may not have known that two million of these Arabs got together and chanted, let's make martyrs of the Jews. Uh, This is another one that came from, uh, I received this from Dr. Robbie Dean. And it was from a female correspondent, and I can't remember her name. Sorry about that. But this is what, uh, how it reads. It's short. Palestine. There really is no such country, but we will reference the region using this title. You understand what he's saying, don't you? They talk about <coughs> most people that you would talk to, and if, if you mention Palestinians, they would think, oh, well, that's a 
country or a land called Palestine. Uh, and, and it was for the Palestinians, which is a complete fabrication. There never has been or will be, well, I don't know about will be, but at least there never has been um, a Palestine that was the homeland of the Palestinians. Homeland of the Palestinians were Jordan, was Jordan for the most part. But in any case, that's the way he, she starts out. They have a new law that will pay convicted terrorists a monthly stipend, that would be a salary, while they are in Israeli jails. Now this is the Palestine our president supports. Now the reason this, that statement was made is because you heard recently that our own president has suggested pushing an initiative whereby Israel would be pushed back to its borders of, of uh, 1967, which would essentially be suicide. And I've just read some things. In fact, I sent it out to a few of you that that remark from our president just happened to be the goals that were presented in the peace talks of the Palestinians. So it appears that the goals of the Palestinians have become the policy of the United States. At least that's the incentive. That's what appears to be uh, trying to uh, go forth. Proceeding. The new law was enacted before the recent Fatah-Hamas reconciliation agreement and was published in the official PA, that would be the, uh, the uh, Palestinian Authority Registry, on April 13, 2011. That wasn't that long ago. Have any of you heard about the Fatah-Hamas reconciliation agreement? No. Another thing kept out of the news. The law includes, now this is the law that was passed about a month ago. And the law includes a monthly salary to provide for the needs of prisoners within Israeli prisons, additional benefits for released prisoners, additional benefits for prisoners, for the prisoners' families, funding for the prisoners' legal needs. All this has become law. In other words, if, if you have... Uh, a family member that is a terrorist and you're in this area in the Mideast, then you can plan on receiving a monthly salary as long as that person is in prison and even additional benefits for released prisoners. Hundreds of Palestinian prisoners are serving multiple life sentences for murder and will receive a PA salary which goes directly to the terrorist's or the terrorist family. In addition, the law states that a prisoner's children will be exempt from 80% of their academic tuition fees if the prisoner was sentenced to at least 20 years and has been in prison for at least five. The Palestinian Authority has been playing, paying salaries to prisoners since its establishment in 1994. So this is the stuff the mainstream media leaves out they would have you believe that the Palestinians are a poor, suffering people, which to a degree they are, but it's always put in the context of how inhumane Israel is to the Palestinians. They don't mention that the Palestinians, Arabs, can be part of the Knesset, which would be the same as our Congress. Uh, they have the 
the same rights for the most part as Israelis have. The UN is really gearing up to push a Palestinian state, which they're talking about a vote maybe taking place in September, which isn't that far off, whether Israel likes it or not. The only problem is that the uh, Palestinians has not agreed, first of all, to even admit or receive Israel as a nation. Uh, they still believe they need to be wiped off the face of the earth. They don't, they don't believe in their right to exist. <coughs> and this is stated publicly by their leaders. Uh, nor would they have any Jews reside in a Palestinian state if there was a state. These are things that they say are not negotiable. But the UN is trying to push this through anyway. So these are things that appear to be very... Um, interesting as we see things culminating the, the, the storm clouds are brewing we know that Israel is the pulse of eschatology uh, and so we just I find it interesting and anti-semitism is greatly on the rise and I don't have time nor would I go through all of the particulars with regards to the leadership of our own country, but in especially the highest leadership is showing colors of anti-Semitism. And this is, does not bode well for us. If you'll take your Bibles and open to Second Thessalonians chapter 3. And we'll, we'll, we're going to start by looking at verse 6, or at least we'll start with verse, well, let's start with verse 5. And may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. That's where we left off. I'm going to put the... Notes up on the screen so you can see. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. Now, we ended last time on Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, which was really connected to the part in verse 4. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. The idea here is that not only Paul, but the Lord himself expects us to do and to keep on doing. The idea that once we're saved, the game is over, now we can just try to live a moral life and hope for the best is not what the Bible, especially in the New Testament, is indicating. There is work to be done. God expects us to work, to keep on working. None of this has anything to do with our eternal salvation that is secure because of what God has already done. Where most people miss the point is all these commands, all these issues with regards to us working has nothing to do with eternal salvation but still are incumbent upon us all. Philippians chapter 2 verse 12. 
So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You've heard that before. This is very controversial. Of course, those who are not grace-oriented, those who do not understand the gospel, try to apply this with regards to our eternal salvation. And since work is involved, we know that simply cannot be. This salvation is not, repeat, not the positional, the positional type nor of the eternal salvation type. This has to do with our experience in time. We are to work our, out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's one reason we're left, is to work out our deliverance. God is in a process of delivering us. All of us, all of us believers are in enemy territory. We live, we live in the devil's world. And he is in the process of delivering us from that and enabling us to work, to work out our deliverance. When it comes to the experiential part of our lives, it is essentially, I, I, I guess I've never worded it this way, but it's co-oping with God. We can't do it by ourselves, but we are expected to do something, to do and to keep on doing. It is God who is in you both to will. He's the one that provides the motivation. He provides the instructions. He provides everything that we need both to will to do it and to work for his good pleasure. It is God's good pleasure for us to work, spiritual work. Which leads very well into what we're going into next with regards to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. And may God the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. This seems like somewhat of an innocuous verse just sounds like a bible verse but like so many like it there is a lot there first of all we'll look at the the phrase here may the lord direct and we have the word there kat uthuno k-a-t-h excuse me k-a-t-e-u-t-h-u-n-o it's a verb. It's the aorist active optative. Have you noticed the optative moods that we've had? They're fairly rare, and Paul is using, using them quite a bit here. Optative mood means something that he desires. It's a wish for this to take place. It means to guide or direct one's way or journey to a place. To lead or keep straight. The aorist tense is an ingressive aorist referring to the start or beginning of something. He's saying I, it's his desire that this start taking place, that the Lord will direct. How does the Lord direct us? The next two words helps us answer that question. Your heart's. You know what this is. You've all here, I'm sure, seen this word many times. <clears throat> the word for heart is cardia. And I don't, I'm not aware of any place in the Bible where it's actually referring to the 
physical pump in our chest. It's the dominant portion of our soul, the cardia. Paul was expressing a desire or prayer that the Lord would direct the hearts of the Thessalonians. Now, how does God direct the hearts of believers? <laughs> you guessed it. See, I have it. You already know that. And that is through His Word. God does not come down to us and whisper in our ear, turn left here, go two blocks, turn right, take this job, don't take that one, stay clear of this woman, this one is okay to marry, this one is the one to marry. All this type of thing doesn't happen that way. We have the Holy Spirit that directs us in conjunction with His Word. That's how God directs our hearts. In order for the Lord to direct our hearts into the love of God, there must be a few things that's taking place. First of all, there has to be doctrine in our frame of reference. Everyone wants to be directed, but nobody wants to study the Word. Now, not literally. There are some that want to study. I see people here that are taking notes, reading their Bibles, concentrating. But for the most part, they want to be directed, but they don't have any frame of reference. We can talk about Christology, soteriology, pneumatology, hermodiology. We can talk about all these different things, and to some people, it doesn't connect. They have no frame of reference for any of these things because they have no doctrine. So, in order to be guided by God, first of all, you have to have a frame of reference. Second of all, you have to have doctrine in your memory center. That's part of your heart, by the way, part of the cardia. We have long-term memory and we have short-term memory. The problem so many times is you, you hear something taught, you agree with it, and you think, that's really neat, and you let's press on. It's not repeated. You really haven't meditated on it. And when you're on the front lines and someone asks, what did you study? Or there was something, some scenario developed and you need that portion of doctrine and you, you may struggle with it because it hasn't been processed into your heart, into your cardia as long-term memory. And that's something, fortunately, that we don't have to consciously do. We don't study a particular verse, a particular chapter, a particular book in the Bible and say, oh, this is really important. I better file this into long-term memory. We can, do, we can take steps that will aid that long-term memory process. I can show you my Bible and in the front, the, the pages that were blank are not blank anymore. When something really strikes me, I want to note it, not just in the page where it is, I want to go to a, a page where I have just, it's not in any particular order, unfortunately. Uh, when I started making notes, it's kind of willy-nilly. But I know where in, within three or four pages I can find most of the issues that I have to deal with most of the time and that I want to be in long-term memory. We can go to that extent. But is God the Holy Spirit that files it into long-term memory when we are filled with the Holy Spirit and we are concentrating, then the Holy Spirit 
can take that once we believe it, once we assimilate it. It's like taking chew, chewing food. And once you say, mm-hmm, I think I'll swallow this one, and when you swallow it, do you have to concentrate, okay, now I've got to get all these nutrients to the right place. I have to make sure that the enzymes are going to do their job. We don't have to do any of that, do we? <laughs> Aren't you glad? What if God designed that, that every time you had a meal, you had to get all the right enzymes and nutrients and get it all sorted out? We don't have to do anything, but what must we do? Swallow it. First of all, we have to take it into our mouth, chew it up. But when it's swallowed, your body takes over and does what's necessary. In the spiritual realm, as you concentrate, you're listening to the Word, under the filling of the Holy Spirit, you believe it, it becomes epinosis doctrine. And the Holy Spirit then takes it and files it away, long-term memory. And sometimes there are things that we may not have used in, in quite a while, but it's still in our computer. It's still filed away in our hard drive, and the Holy Spirit can go in there and get it and have it out in a millisecond so that we can use it. All that is part of this frame of reference and memory center. What the Holy Spirit cannot do is take something out of the memory center that's not there. First of all, it has to be there. There has to be a frame of reference. Then there has to be memory traces. It has to be stored. And when it's there, the Holy Spirit can use it. The problem is most believers have a hard drive. Um, I'm not real skilled in how many mil, uh, gigabytes everything is. But I remember my first compu computer was a 386SX, I believe is what it was. And it had, I think, one thousandth or less than that of what we have now. And a lot of people don't have enough hard drive to get out of the driveway, so to speak, when it comes to spiritual matters. Also, we have to have doctrine in our vocabulary center. That's also processed in the cardia of your heart. Have you ever tried to articulate something to someone you saw something on the news, you read an article, and boy, it really impacted you. And you go to someone else, and you're all excited. Hey, let me tell you about this. They say, all right, what is it? And you say, um, I read something, or maybe I heard it on the news. Uh, it had to do with, I'm not sure what it had to do with, but it was really good. <laughs> Have you ever been there? Sometimes we call that senior moments, but it doesn't just happen to seniors. We have to have a vocabulary. It's really nice as a pastor to be able to talk to a congregation that I don't have to spell out every little thing, and every time I come to a basic doctrine, I don't have to stop and reteach it. Because you've developed a technical vocabulary. No one grows in any field without a technical vocabulary. I was fortunate enough because my granddad, my uncle, and my dad were all plumbers. And <clears throat> when I was eight years old, I used to go on house calls with my dad. He was a repair plumber for a while. And he taught me what all the fittings were. And so he could say, uh, go into the truck and I want to 
a four by three combination and a, 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 a two by two sanitary tee. I'd go out there and get them and I'd come back and I had it right on. That's technical vocabulary. There's a difference between a sanitary tee and a combination. Those are technical. But if you're going to be a good plumber, you have to know these technical, you have to develop a technical vocabulary. If you're a doctor, how would you like to have a doctor operating on you? He's in the operating room and he says, uh, Nurse, give me that long skinny thing with a little twist on the end. I'm sorry, I just didn't have time to develop a technical vocabulary, but I, I, that's the one I'm pretty sure what I'm supposed to use. Would you like a doctor operating on you that didn't have a technical vocabulary? In everything in life, it doesn't matter what it is, you have to develop a technical vocabulary. And most Christians are lazy. They want to go and feel good, get a big emotional shot when they go to church, but they don't want to sit down and learn and develop theological uh, systematic theology and learn a technical vocabulary. But without it, how can you express yourself to other people? These are some of the things that you have to have in order for God to direct you. All this is necessary for one to develop an edification complex of the soul. We haven't gone here in a while, but we're going here tonight. I think. I know it's here. Y'all can be brushing up in your mind. Here it is. What if? What is the edification complex of the soul? This would be. A, a, what is? What is an edifice? An edifice is a building. It's a structure. If you had a big building here, someone might say, "Now this is a great edifice." edifice. And so, that edific- and, and you, you know, we get the word edification. Now, edification complex as a soul is something that I learned from my mentor. I didn't come up with it. But it does give you a, somewhat of a visual in your, in your own mind's eye of building something that is necessary for God to direct you and for you to be able to grow. Now, I'm looking at it, and you're not, because I haven't put it up on the screen yet. I didn't put it up there purposely because I want to ask you something. Uh, take out your pens and uh, your paper if you can. If not, you'll have to do it mentally. And there are five floors to the edification complex of the soul. As you grow spiritually, as you get more information, something is happening. You're building a structure in your soul. It is a spiritual structure. And it has to be a structure that has a foundation, it has to have a, a midsection, it has to have a roof, it's got a, essentially a penthouse, this type of thing. So, in our own soul, what is the first floor of the edification complex of the soul? If you don't have this foundation, you're going nowhere, the structure's going to fall, you've got to have something as a foundation, it's two words. See if you can write them down. On top of that, once you have that in place, then you can not be distracted. That's the biggest item that probably shipwrecks believers today is they get distracted. So the second floor is something that will help you to not get distracted. And it's got three letters in it. 
It's not a word. In other words, it's three words. And if you take the first letter of each word is what I want you to see. In fact, you get credit even if you have for the first one. If you don't have two words, if you just have two letters, the first letter of each word, then you get credit. The third floor is something that develops once you have the foundation in place and you haven't been distracted, then you are going to acquire something that is necessary for you to execute the Christian way of life. And it is three letters too. It's three words and it's three letters. You have to have this and if you have it, you're going to make a lot of friends. People are going to like you. Once you have that in place, then you're going to have capacity in three areas. Three areas of the same thing, let me put it that way. Not three different things. The first, le- uh, the first entity in these three, see each one of these are, are three except the first one, is a three. I know I'm not explaining this as well. If you have this down, you'll follow it. If not, when you see it, you'll understand. There's only one more because there's five floors to this house. If you have everything in place, then this is what you're going to be. One word. Do I need to go over that again or are you all ready to see it? How many of you have never heard or never seen the edification complex of the soul? I want to see your hand. Well, this you, you, you would just be guessing outright then. <laughs> okay. Here it is. Start with the foundation. Go. That's how I always remembered it. When you go... You're, 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 you're on your way. And that stands for grace orientation. If you're not grace oriented, forget it. You're going nowhere in the Christian life. What does grace orientation mean? It means that you realize that our connection with God is grace. We can't impress Him with anything that we say or do because everything, like uh, in James, the book of James, it says every good gift and every uh, every good thing and every perfect gift comes from uh, the God of lights. Grace orientation. We don't take credit. God gets the credit. God gets the glory. We get the what? Blessing. Grace orientation. Second floor up. Mastery of the details of life. If you don't master the details of life, they will master you. They will become your master. So once you're grace-oriented, you're on your way, you're depending on the Lord, then you have, you have to master the details of life. And this is something that I've seen so often. Once a person really gets interested in God's Word, they're growing, always something comes into their life to distract them. 
I've, I can't tell you how many guys that I've known that took off with doctrine like a skyrocket, and I knew it was going to happen. In the very near future, they were going to meet some really attractive woman. And that woman usually was negative. And they were facing essentially the same test that Adam did. Here you have God had everything given to Adam that he could possibly want. Eve had already rebelled. She had already eaten of the forbidden fruit. Adam wasn't conned. He knew what the score was. And he had to choose whether it was going to be Eve and go, go with her to where he could be with her on her side or go with God and there was no contest. As far as he was concerned, he went with Eve. And here's the same thing here, mastery of the details of life. Now, details of life are just things that you have to do. We all have to uh, have a life. You have to go to the dentist. You, you have to go to school. You have to go to work. You have to buy groceries. You have to interact with people. All these things are fine. We all have to do them. But we can't let them master us. Here's the, here's the key to mastering the details of life. You make God and His Word number one priority and everything else falls into place under that. Once you have done that, you've essentially mastered the details of life. There's so many believers out there that try to decide, should I go to church? Should I go to Bible class? Should I get on the Internet? Should I do this? Should I do that? Yeah, but my favorite TV show is coming on. I have a, a anniversary to go to. I have a graduation to go to. Our life is just crammed with things. I have to buy a gift. I have to do that. I have to do that. Well, mastering the details of life is getting your priorities in order, and the order, the right order, is God and His Word first. Now, if you have grace orientation, mastery of details of life, then you have a RMA. Well, I've heard that a thousand times. How about you? A thousand, more than a thousand times. I wish I had an RMA and I didn't. Relax mental attitude. If you're grace oriented, you master the detail of life. You got your priorities in order. An RMA means that you're faith resting. It means that you're applying your doctrine. It means that you're not considering yourself the center of the universe. You're not uptight when things go awry because you recognize this is a chance to shine. God may be trying to test you. The, third, the, the fourth one is uh, three CL, three categories of love. Number one is who? God. Number two, your spouse. Number three, everybody else. Children and then everybody else. Spouse comes before children. So you have three categories of love and then we get to the penthouse this is what you have if you have if you're grace oriented you've mastered the details of life you have an rma you have three categories of love and well in where you have capacity to love in those three areas that is massive in what all that entails it entails understanding the difference between impersonal 
are unconditional love and personal love and how to switch from one to the other. Then you get the plus H, which is sharing the happiness of God. Actually, what this is was a precursor to the divine domain. This was expanded to have more floors in it, but this was rudimentary. This was the beginning. It was called the edification complex of the soul. Here is a visible representation. Of course, there, it's not visible, but it is real. Y'all ready to press on now? Edification complex of the soul. See, it looks like a complex. It looks like a housing complex, like an apartment or something. All right. So, we go back to here. All this is necessary for one to develop an edification complex of the soul. Now you've seen the edification complex of the soul. So that the, that the Lord will direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. So we looked at direct your hearts. Now we have into the love of God. Now the word love there is agape, A-G-A-P-E. It's a noun accused of singular feminine. It means love, affection, regard, goodwill, or benevolence. The love of God and the patient endurance of Christ motivates, to, motivates us to obey the Word and to patiently endure trials. We love because... Why do we love? How, why are we able to love? Because He first loved us. And in re, re, reciprocation to that love, we want to obey and patiently endure trials. We know that that's pleasing to our Lord. Now, we may have a lot going for us, but without love, we are nothing. And I got that right out of the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We are as annoying as a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. We need the Lord to direct our minds into the love of God because by nature we are arrogant, selfish, and thoughtless of others. No sugarcoating there, is it? That's what we are. And I'll back it up with Scripture. Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Genesis 8.21 For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Psalms 50, 53.1-3 I love this one. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. Every time someone tells me they don't believe in God, which I don't know if it's ever happened, but I, I hear about people talking to atheists and they say they don't believe in God. It's the first thing coming out of my mouth. I mean, not out of my mouth, but it's the first thing I think about is it's a fool who says there is no God. Corrupt are they and have done abominable iniquity. 
There is none that doeth good. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and did seek God. And every one of them is gone back. That would be gone astray. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Now let me put this in context. This isn't to say that people can't do good things. People can do good things. But no person can do divine good apart from God enabling them to do so. First of all, they have to be a believer. If you're not a believer, you can't do anything that is acceptable to God except believe the gospel in a spiritual sense. They can't do good. They can, they can do good things. You can walk an old lady across the street. But God sees that as filthy rags because it's human good. That's all they can do. That's what we are like apart from God's enabling. Mark seven twenty one through 22. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Where does all this come out of? It comes out of the cardia. comes out of our own hearts. Does this just happen to unbelievers? Is this just describing unbelievers? Huh? Can, are you telling me that as a believer that you can have evil thoughts of fornication, theft, murders, adultery? Murders? Have you ever murdered anybody in your heart? Huh? I don't want to know. I'm just, that's just a rhetorical question. Remember what the Lord told the Pharisees. If you hate someone, you've already murdered them in your heart. Ever done that? Adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, deceit. That deceit, you know, it's amazing to me how devious children are. I'm talking about toddlers. Who taught them that? Who taught them how to go and steal a little toy from someone and go over here and hide it, put it over here, and then just, just look? Like, who taught them how to do that? It's coming out of their heart. The heart isn't here, it's up here. Coming out of their soul. That, that is our nature. That's why the Lord has to direct us, or our, our God has to direct us into these things, see? We can't do it on our own. Okay, the love of God. Our, you might think this was a little uh, hard to grasp. Maybe not, I don't know, but we're fixing to get worse. Okay. The only reason that we are able to obey the command to love God is because why? He loved us first. 
And then we have a command here. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. I wish I was, if I was exegeting this, we would look at the difference between the heart, the soul, and the mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Is that for us? Look at, look at where it is. It's in Matthew. Who was this written to? It was written to believers who were still under the Mosaic Law. Are we to love our neighbors as ourselves? Or are we to love them the way that Christ loves us? I think that's a higher standard, isn't it? <laughs> Always thought. Love your neighbor as yourself. What if you were real angry with yourself? Uh, you did something stupid. You hurt somebody's feelings. You did something. That means you could go over there and take it out on your neighbor. I mean, it, no. That would not even apply to us anyway. We're at a higher level. First uh, John four nineteen. We love because he first loved us. Now here's what I want you. Whoa. Here's what I want you to see. You see at the top God's unconditional love for all. God's conditional. Love for a few. Now, on the left, we have, for the most part, what you could call agape love. And on the right is what you have phileo love. It's a personal love as opposed to impersonal or unconditional. Phase one at salvation, God demonstrates his love to who? The entire human race because there is the doctrine of unlimited atonement. And that love is based on... Whose character, whose love, who's, who, who's it based on? God's. It's unconditional. God unconditionally loved the whole human race when Jesus Christ was sent, should say volunteered, went to the cross. That's unconditional for all. Now, to the right, you see, there is God's conditional love for a few. He has personal love towards believers that he does not have towards unbelievers and what what is the target of his personal love now i'm asking you you already see it up there his own righteousness see there has to be something attractive for personal love to operate and the attractiveness of a believer that has just believed in the lord jesus christ one second ago is enough for God to love him with his personal love because he possesses something that is so attractive, that is so valuable, and that is his own righteousness. That's why he is able to love you, and he loved me when we believed in Jesus Christ personally, a, love, a different kind of love than he had for us when we were an unbeliever because now there's something that he is attracting to him. In phase two, this would be time. God has unconditional love for all, all believers. Now, we're talking phase two, a believer has already believed in Jesus Christ, and he has unconditional love for every believer in logistical grace because who gets logistical grace? Believers. All believers? Yes. I don't know who's on the bottom of the list, the big crumb bum of all believers. 
I don't know who that is. I know God knows who they are, but they get logistical grace. He is going to get, they are his child. He's going to give them everything that they need to grow up. But now when you get into mature believers, God's conditional love for a few, he loves them in a way different than he does all the rest of believers who are mediocre, take it or leave it for the most part with regards to a relationship with God. They Maybe they understand they're going to heaven. Maybe they're just still hoping that they will. But they don't have an intimate relationship with God. And so he has a personal love with them. These would be the super grace believers who have already reached at least spiritual adulthood. What is so attractive to him is their positive volition. Phase three in eternity. God's unconditional love for all is all believers. Doesn't matter. Remember that crumb bum that was on the bottom? Whoever that may be, male or female. Whoever that may be, they're going to get logistical grace until they die the sin unto death. I'm sure the worst crumb bum believer in the, in the world is going to die the sin unto death. And when they die the sin unto death, they're going to go and be with the Lord in heaven until we return with Him, get our resurrection body. Is He going to be forfeiting a resurrection body? No. Every believer gets a resurrection body. But here's the news flash that most believers don't even realize. All resurrection bodies aren't the same. There's going to be resurrection bodies and then there are going to be resurrection bodies indeed. Some of them are going to be probably hard to find even in the dark. You know, like a light. They're not going to be glowing much. I had a flashlight one time. Carrie gave it to me and I never did tell her. It was so sweet of her to give it to me, but it was sorry flashlight. <laughs> it was one of those kind you have to shake, you know, it's some little old device in there would go on and on, you know, generating some kind of electricity or something. And then you turn it on, and even if you were in a dark room, you could hardly notice it was on. It was LED, or I don't know what it was, but it was sorry. There are going to be believers with a resurrection body. They will be in heaven. They'll have a resurrection body, but they're going to be like that flashlight. And then there are going to be believers you can see miles away in their resurrection body. They're the ones with the rewards, decorations, privileges, and opportunities for how long? All eternity. So when we're talking about God's love, we're looking at in phase one, salvation, phase two, time, and phase three. There's three different aspects to this. He's loved us in the first phase one. He's already loved us with unconditional love. Phase two, he's loved us with unconditional love. He's loved all of us here in phase one with the personal love because we all here have His own righteousness. He loves some of us. I'm not going to be so presumptuous to say that He loves all of us with this phase two personal type love. That would be phileo type love. Maybe He has. I don't know. Maybe He does. But surely... Most believers don't ever receive that personal type of love because they're 
They're stuck in kindergarten. They never get it. They don't want a close, intimate relationship with God. Can any believer have that if they want it? Absolutely. There's nothing that he wants more. There are believers that go for weeks or months and never pray. That's like having, can you imagine having a human parent going that long without talking to them? Not interested. You could even say maybe they're estranged. But they're going to have a resurrection body and they're going to have uh, logistical grace. I have some other um, screens on this, but I, I think that will suffice. So here we are. We're talking about the love of God that, uh, let's go back up here. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. Now you see more aspects with regards to the love of God. And into the steadfastness of Christ. Let me get down here. Y'all shut your eyes when I'm doing this. I don't want to make you dizzy. I'm just about out of time. And if I had good sense, I'd stop here. But I never do. This would, And into the steadfastness of Christ. This word steadfastness. It's hupomone in the Greek. It's aorist uh, singular feminine. It's a noun. means to persevere, remain under, a bearing up under, under patience, endurance as to things or circumstances. Hupomone in, is associated with hope in 1 Thessalonians 1.3 and refers to that quality of character which does not allow one to surrender to circumstances or succumb under trial. That was from Zodiades, the complete word study dictionary of the New Testament. Would you like to have that? Huh? That's hupomone. That's what that word means. And what Spiros Zodiades in his dictionary is saying is, first of all, it is associated with hope. What is hope? Confidence in the Lord. And refers to that quality of character which does not allow one to surrender to circumstances or to succumb under trial. Have you ever been thrown in the towel? Felt like throwing in the towel? Well, of course you have. I know I have. Romans 2, 5 through 7. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render every man according to his deeds to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. See this stubbornness, unrepentant heart? That's the antithesis of steadfastness of Christ. That's what we want. That endurance to hold up under pressure. Because the day of wrath and revelation of righteous judgment of God who will render it to every man according to his deeds. To those, by, to those who what? By perseverance. What is the Christian race? Is it a sprint or long? You know what it is. It's an endurance, long Marathon. In doing good, 
Perseverance and doing good. Look at that. Doing. We have to do something. Produce divine good. Now, sometimes, sometimes producing divine good is nothing more than just keeping an RMA. It's switching to unconditional love. You don't have to go out there and build homes for the homeless for it to be divine good. In fact, most of the time it's just what's going, up, going on up here, what you're thinking. In doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality and eternal life. And I'm going to end right there because I want to tell you, did you see that? Seeking for something? Seeking for what? What's the last words? Last two words. Eternal life. Do you have to seek for eternal life? Well, what's that talking about? That's where we're going to start next time because I've said in the past, I don't know how many times I've told you, that there are two kinds of eternal life. And I have it, if, if we had another hour, we'd just coast right into it. But I think your batteries are low. <laughs> no, I don't mean the flashlight. I meant your physical battery. <laughs> I think your spiritual batteries are pretty well charged, but your human batteries are probably at the limit. So I'm going to start out Thursday night, and I'm going to teach you something about eternal life I've never taught before ever. And if you don't know this, you're going to be confused. Somebody's going to point something out, and you won't understand it. So there's two types of eternal life, and I'm telling you right, one right now, even from this verse you can tell, is something that you must seek. And if you have to seek it, it means that you don't have it. And that's all I'll say until next time. Okay, let's close. Father, thank you for this time to help us remember how much we need you for you to lead us into the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ because we certainly cannot, we, we can't go an inch without your enabling. We thank you for this because we know that we live in perilous times. We are assaulted from the inside by our worries and fears and from the outside of those who hate you and they hate grace. However, you are the one that will lead us through all of these things. So we pray that you will help us to develop that hope, that confidence that you will do just exactly that so that we won't have to fade away and shy away when our Lord returns because of the judgment seat of Christ, but we can have even boldness with regards to your great promises. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.